This is Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast by SF MoMA. I'm your host, Geraldine Asu, for a season about art, community, and social justice. Up next on Raw Material. A lot of my work, especially in recent years, is focusing on the revolution as a pivotal point because it changed my life and my country the way I knew it. I mean, I'm a generation after the revolution, you know, and I assume my practice is really derived by the situation, by the condition of Iran. We're talking about art and legacy. They say we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. But for all the strides that we've inherited through generations of survival, activism, and revolution, we also bear the weight of historic suffering and violence. Caught in a cycle of what can seem like a never-ending repetition of the past, how does art connect us to what we've inherited so that we can remember for the sake of a new future. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Oh, for me, it's a repeat of what the experience I went through. That's San Francisco-based artist Terane Hamami. Originally from Iran, Hamami first came to the U.S. in 1978 on a student visa. Basically, and it was a difficult time for us as students in this country. Um, we were all rounded up and we had to register with INS and uh, over 6,000 students were deported at the time for, you know, minor issues with their visas and whatnot. I almost got deported. Um, It was basically, yeah, we were the enemy. In 1979, just one year after Hamami arrived in the U.S., the Iranian people staged a revolution. This altered relations between the U.S. and Iran to this very day. In order to explain the revolution, you kind of have to go back to the CIA coup d'etat of 1953. In 1953, the U.S. and Britain orchestrated a coup d'etat in Iran. Angry over then-Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh's increasing limitations around foreign control over the country's oil, they deposed him and forcefully put uh, the young monarch, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, in power. And he was in power, kind of a puppet government of U.S. for over a quarter of a century. This is what led to the revolution, which resulted in the ousting of U.S.-backed Pahlavi and the creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But after years of living under foreign control, and with the momentum of the revolution still releasing decades worth of suppressed national outcry, it wasn't over yet. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran, where our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages. 
Not long after the revolution, a group of students in Tehran stormed the U.S. Embassy and held more than 50 American workers hostage. This crisis lasted for 444 days. And this was the last straw. Iran was now the enemy. In addition to cutting diplomatic ties and enforcing economic withholdings, then-President Jimmy Carter also invalidated all visas issued to Iranian citizens for future entry to the U.S. A ban, if you will. Stuck in a country where she was now the enemy and removed from a home she hardly recognized anymore, Hamami stayed in the U.S. for the next seven years. I felt like I was a different person <laughs> when I met my parents again. Um, and, and those few years for us just seemed like an eternity. And being so young, you also think that those, like I thought I'd never see my parents again. Like, you know, you do see it as eternal, you know. Hamami's part of the first wave of Iranian immigrants, those who came before the revolution. A lot of my work, especially in recent years, is focusing on the revolution as a pivotal point. Because it changed my life and my country the way I knew it. Hall of Reflections is a project that was imagined for a community center. She's talking about the Persian Center in Berkeley, California. So I approached the community center wanting to bring the stories of the community into the center as a hall of reflections, a mirrored hall that reflected not only the present day, uh, but the past stories of the people who make up the community. With this in mind, Hamami invited folks to send in a photo and a story. Once received, she then scanned them onto transparencies and placed them carefully in what she called story bricks. These were fragile, handcrafted blocks made of mirror and glass. The story bricks were then arranged in ornate geometric patterns that were reminiscent of gathering halls in Iran, a nostalgic reference to a homeland so far yet still recognizable. The photos, they were sandwiched between mirror and glass, um, knowing very well that the photos themselves uh, were going to disappear in time. So what has remained or what will remain eventually in the tiles are the patterns and the photographs become kind of a shadow of the past. Loss and remnants and the way in which we try to recover what's missing. It's hard not to wonder about the past and how we reassemble it from a present-day point of view. Looking at the story bricks carefully placed in order to construct a picture of what used to be, how would our memories change if we had other pieces to the puzzle? So theater of survival is also connects to Hall of Reflections for me. Wanting to connect personal narratives to an even larger context, Hamami began reaching out to different Iranian organizations in the Bay Area, ranging from theater groups to schools that teach Farsi. And she invited them to bring in their archives. One of my favorite things that we collected during that time was um, different yellow pages that was produced for the Iranian community in San Jose. So like a decade of basically different businesses. <laughs> Um, that were documented through these yellow, these hideous yellow pages. <laughs> but then, Hamami struck 
gold. The Iranian Student Association of Northern California, they were a particularly active group during the revolution. They had amassed a stunning collection of materials of over 30 years. So this archive was also a library that they had put together of not only their own publications, but other uh, publications, um, news from Iran, a lot of newspaper was part of the archive. Um, many zines um, from all over the world um, and also um, in different languages. Um, so an amazing, amazing find. Hamami's 2008 project, Theory of Survival, was born from this process. After recovering years' worth of history that had been kept in the dark, she invited artists from the Iranian diaspora to engage with its reawakening. The artists that I invited could, you know, had an open hand in what they would respond to. A number of them responded to their own archives, not just the archives that I had collected, their parents' archives. One of the artists invited to respond was Arash Fayez. This performance is also a reflection of the archive. I don't know that much. We're listening to excerpts from a piece he contributed to Theory of Survival entitled, Why Are Wet Materials Transparent? During my research for this project, I looked at the sources and these archives and who is the audience for. I did not myself as a permitted audience. In this piece, Fayez performs a lecture in which he reads from a stack of papers while taking us through a slide projection. His face is illuminated from the glow of the computer, and the slides are projected on a large white screen behind him. Otherwise, the room is dark. Fayez speaks in both English and Farsi, eventually recounting stories from his parents while also posing questions about what these stories mean to him. I mean, I'm a generation after the revolution, you know, and I assume my practice is really derived by the situation, by the condition of Iran. He goes to this performance steadily, evenly. And with each piece of paper that he reads from, after he's done, he feeds it to the shredder. And in some way it has like few undertone connection to my practice. One, a performance should be performed once and only once, no repeats. Two, sometimes painful, personal stories can be hard to tell, so we bury them deep down, hoping they'll disappear. And three, all of these archives who's been preserved very, very properly here, disconnected from there. For me, there is no difference of this archive doesn't exist at all. What does this archive mean to be here without being connected to its location? For me, it's like shredding the archive. In Hamami's piece, Theory of Survival, artists responded in lots of different ways, some using music, others reflecting on current political moments. 
But in many ways, Hamami was inviting folks not just to engage with the materials that she had found, but also to engage with the question of an archive itself. I've been thinking about what does that mean to not project a story while creating a form of a story. A descendant of the Iranian Revolution, but with no direct experience of that moment, Fayez is tied to a country of multiple identities. He himself was born in Iran, grew up in France, moved back to Iran before he eventually came to the U.S. It's really hard, I think, to necessarily describe like properly who I was there and who I am here. It is more a state of mind that I think it becomes to play after the displacement. And this displacement is not necessarily from like a far distance to another one, but more usually it happens from a language to another, from a culture to another, and when things don't match anymore together. I interviewed Fayez for this episode, and to be honest, going into it, I felt a little unprepared. I had done my research and set my questions, but there was still something foggy. It almost felt squirmish, slippery, kind of elusive, almost like I wanted to have a clear direction for our time together, but Fayez, in some way, just kept resisting. Before we begin, I noticed that Fayez goes by two names, Fayez and Faiz. I think to myself, I can't even pin down his name. So I ask him, which name should we go by? You can switch actually between both. Both. I put that as an example, thinking about my situation after I moved to the States, thinking about the person I was back home in Tehran and the person I am here, um, this modification, this displacement, how it creates these two persona. Fayez actually uses two names, Fayez and Faiz, to indicate multiplicity in his practice as well. So just a note, I'll be using these names interchangeably throughout the rest of the story. I've been thinking a lot about destruction recently, you know. Sure. We've already talked about displacement and the creation of multiple persona. Distraction seems to fit perfectly with this conversation, being here and somewhere else at the same time. Let's just think about it. Now that you're here, you may be with me fully, but you cannot be with me fully, you know. You may think about the email you need to draft, and at the same time, the dinner that you need to go home and make and but they are not necessarily very present at the moment because maybe you're really concentrated with this but at the same time we all function like this and this is how i think the video in some way try to show that in a different way the video is his piece entitled concatenation conjunction connection Started in 2016, this piece is a whirlwind of an experience that brings us along Faiz's mode of distraction. I think as a displaced person, I am extremely distracted. And I think I function in a distracted mode. When I'm distracted, this is the time that I'm fulfilled. This is the time that I develop ideas. The moment of conflict, it is the moment for me to generate ideas. In this piece, we're first introduced to the screen of a phone. We then start to scroll through a feed, and whenever there's something that catches our eye, the camera zooms in to take a closer look. 
pretty familiar. I do this all the time. So maybe it's a protest sign with a zingy slogan or an evocative photo of someone kissing their own reflection in the mirror. Zoom in, zoom out, scroll on to the next thing, and so on and so on. This continues for at least 30 minutes, essentially stringing together a series of thoughts, moments, and distractions. It's not necessarily something about orders. It's not something about a chronology. It's about um, the existence beyond time. It's the parallel, fragmented existence of things. Here, we're talking moments, but not moments strung together to make a cohesive story. They're fragmented blown apart, and yet still somehow together. This feels so different from the idea of singularity that's been imposed on so many of our lives. It feels familiar. Multiplicity feels possible. We might be Iranian and American, self and other, here and there. This and is the place to be, how this and creates all of this connection between things that exist, how this and is the existence of this distracted, fragmented world that I was explaining beforehand. Past and present and future. Perhaps what we're left with are pieces. Pieces that we've inherited, that we hold close as precious portals to what came before. But as Fayez points out, reassemblage is also not necessarily the same as reconstruction. So we make and we make, and we keep making, something unknown. So the story continues, and it's not a set story, it's changing. But if we keep at it, the future might start to look like something that's ours. Next time on Raw Material. It wasn't anything that was going to end up on a wall or in a frame or installed in a gallery. But those who participated came away with inspiration. We'll always go back to having parties because that's the origin of the idea of like healing and ritual and release, but also still have art happen. It's our last episode of the season and we're having a party with you. Join us. Season two of Raw Material is produced by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and me, Geraldine Asu. The music you heard in this episode was from Revolution Void, Z's, Parvis Decree, and local Bay Area jazz trio Brown Fellinis. To learn more about what you heard today, visit sfmoma.org backslash raw-material. We'll see you next time. <laughs>